Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 6. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. On this episode, in our current events segment, we talk about the gentrification occurring in Boyle Heights. And in our case segment, we'll talk about a SCOTUS decision from two years ago that expanded the standard for proving housing discrimination. And for our deep thought segment, we'll be talking about internalized racism. All right. For our current event, we just wanted to bring y'all to this neighborhood in Los Angeles, Boyle Heights. Recently, there's been a, a ton of LA articles, LA Times articles and other other media covering it because the resistance efforts have focused in on a specific coffee shop, Weird Wave. And most recently, they had their door slash window broken, and it seems like it was in connection to these resistance efforts. Um, Yvette, do you want to talk a little bit about the reactions, the diverse reactions that have occurred? Yeah. Um, so there have been a few people who have been abiding by respectability politics and saying that protesters are using inappropriate means to get their message across. Um, the vandalized door, the broken windows was only one of a, a few tactics that were used. Um, so an, an art gallery also closed recently in Boyle Heights, and they cited the quote-unquote harassment uh, that they received as motivating their decision to close. And uh, one of the tactics used to pressure the art gallery to close was pouring detergent on the art art goers and on the food that was being served at events. And so people are in an up, you know, the people who care about respectability politics are in an uproar and saying that these tactics are inappropriate and that people should be lobbying city hall if they want to see real change happen yeah and these are just like a couple of the different tactics they've used because they have used a variety right like they're like on social media they're getting a lot of coverage they're organizing really well you know they were setting up picket lines outside the art gallery asking patrons not to cross the picket line and explaining it Yvette, should we back up just a second and kind of talk about gentrification, right? And why resist, why is it important to resist gentrification? Like what even is gentrification? So I think it's important to talk about gentrification as being displacement because I think it can be framed in different ways and um, some people have the audacity to argue that gentrification is a benefit because it brings in capital to poor neighborhoods. But gentrification actually does just result in the displacement of the poorest and the most marginalized within a neighborhood. So what ends up happening is that younger clientele who are more affluent find a particular neighborhood appealing because of the low rent and you know, because it might be close to public transportation or in some other way appealing to these these young professionals. And so then as a result, um, potential businesses see these new clientele and they get excited and they want to open up high-end gourmet cheese shops and gourmet coffee shops and they are selling products that people in the neighborhood can't afford to buy. And um, while all this is happening, property values are also increasing because there's a racist pricing system for what neighborhoods are considered desirable and valuable. And poor black and brown neighborhoods are considered undesirable. And so when wider, more affluent people move into a neighborhood, then suddenly property values increase. And as a result, um, if, if while all this is happening, there's also a housing shortage, as has occurred in the Mission in San Francisco, for example, then um, developers use really shady tactics to get renters to leave 
or will underpay renters in order to get them to leave an apartment building so that they can remodel it. And it's basically just about pushing out communities. That's what gentrification is. Yeah, and I think I'm also very highly concerned with often the criminalization that I see comes with it because you have folks moving into these communities, you know, who I feel like are just more like police (laughs) calling trigger happy uh, where they'll call when they see people experiencing homelessness on the streets and will call just call the police you know and see nothing wrong with that and so it's not just like pushing out communities by making it impossible for them to continue living in their communities but also like involving I feel like the police and criminalizing it so that more people are just like forcibly removed from the communities and I particularly find this so insulting because of the history. Like, how did these communities end up being, like, communities of color oftentimes or just more affordable, lower-income communities, working class? Because white people fled. Like, it's literally called white flight. And they left, created suburbs because they didn't want to live with people of color. And now they, like, think it's a-okay for them to move back in and because now they want to because now they find it desirable to live there and push others out it's like you left because you didn't want to live next to us and now you're kicking us out because you decided you want this land back yeah there's definitely a deep deep irony because now that young affluent white people don't find the suburbs as appealing as previous white generations did, then now people of color who have lived in cities that are densely populated, that have access to public transportation, not always, but like in in more neighborhoods than in the suburbs for sure. Um, And, you know, people that live in these neighborhoods that also have a high density of social services that are in the neighborhood that exist to serve the populations that have historically lived there. All of those things, they're cut off from all of those things. And guess what? It's really hard to live in the suburbs if you don't have a car. It's really hard to live in a place where there isn't a free clinic nearby. I I just think it's like, I think that's why like the, br- the brunches and the high-end coffee shops irritate me because it's like it's these really artificial aesthetic and like superfluous preferences that wealthy white people and like wealthy people of color have that are pushing out lower income residents that like that have like real need for these neighborhoods like it makes sense that they want to live in this neighborhood because there's a free clinic that they can go to and because they have access to a bus line that gets them to work those are things that you can do without because you have health insurance and you have a car yeah no I completely agree I think that's such an important part of this conversation where you need to live next to these services and I think this plays into you at the conversation we were having about whether art is a luxury so before the focus was on the weird wave coffee shop Eva, I think you mentioned the art gallery that they successfully got to shut down. It was called like Psst Art Gallery, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, the the art gallery was saying like, oh, well, almost being like, oh, jokes on you because we had a we were an art gallery that was going to be for like queer people of color and people of color artists. And we were just here trying to do the right thing. Um, but. The response from Defend Boyle Heights I thought was really apt in that they're like, look, that's not what we need. We need a laundromat. We need um, more affordable housing, you know, all of these other things. And so I think it plays into that, right? Like this, these communities have more of those services and what they don't need are these coffee shops. There's other services that they still need. I think the the question about the art gallery was a complicated one for me because I think that first and foremost, people need their basic needs met. And it seems to me that they're not being met because the Defend Boyle Heights group was citing basic, basic things that need to be implemented in the neighborhood, like an affordable grocery store or a laundromat. But then I also think that 
for low-income people of color, there aren't as many opportunities to let your creative energies shine. And I think that this comes from multiple places, like primarily from um, defunding art programs, uh, particularly in schools that are already underfunded. But then also even like as the child of immigrants, like telling my parents that I wanted to be an artist would have been such a laughable thing because (laughs) the whole premise of their moving here was so that I could get an education and get a well-paying job. Like that was instilled in me from such a young age that I, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have even thought of that as an option for me. And so, and I also think that, that art is political and that art is resistance But I think I just not knowing the specifics of the art gallery and what place it held, I just have a serious suspicion of what they were actually doing because I don't believe them that they were that they existed to engage queer artists and artists of color and women of color. Because I think if they had done that, then they would have been a bit more mindful of the neighborhood that they were moving into. Right. Yeah. Like, caring about all those populations means also being mindful of your own positionality. It seemed like they were really arrogant coming in and being like, we have this vision, art, and just, like, not at all being mindful of what space they were occupying. Yeah, and I think that critique, like, it applies to so many other, like, well-intending nonprofits, right? Where it's like, no, listen to the community. Like, you're here to serve the community. Okay, then listen to what the community needs. Uh, Don't try to come in here with your agenda of what the community needs like if you're not from this community don't define what they need for them and i it just like i don't know i just think these it's so interesting the responses right because like they go it's like supposedly you're in here to serve the community and yet you become on this defensive and you're like oh like some might see this as a win but it's not a win for this and it just reminds me of like the whole conversation that is going on because of the um latino owner of a weird wave coffee shop like him like just being like oh well this is a latino owned business like why are you trying to kick me out like should we explain who he is yeah oh yeah please do uh so one of the owners of the coffee shop is last name is chavaria and he invested $100,000 into this coffee shop, like, good for him, and then made it a point to note that to the protesters when they were outside. But he was basically saying that um, they were confused, that protesters were confused because he was a Latino man, and so there's no way that he could be problematic. Yeah, and I feel like it's worth repeating, like, every episode of that, that, like, just because you're a person of color does not mean that you can't be problematic or be anti-black or be displacing community like low-income communities you can do those things and still be a person of color like when i read like because i was looking and they're like oh but there's like ooh like plot twist there's a latino owner like you know and i and then i saw oh he invested like a hundred thousand dollars i was like look like ethnicity and race like is important and we can we've talked about why it's important but to me at some point like the intersection between like class between communities of different ethnicities becomes more and more important and this was just such a good example like important example in my eyes of like Look, you have $100,000 to invest in a coffee shop. I'm sorry, but I don't think you and I have the similar understanding of what a community needs or, you know, what your place in this community is. Like, the six, just because you get to make profit on your $100,000, like, how does that benefit anyone else in this community? Yeah. I mean, I also, I think that race is still at issue here because he, I saw a picture of him and he looked pretty light-skinned um I think some would say he was white passing and I think that this brings us back to episode four when we were we were kind of trying to disentangle these things like the hierarchies within Latinidad that exist because of colorism and classism and I this man is a perfect example of that because he's a white passing wealthy man who has ancestral roots in Latin America 
and wants to use his Latinidad as a reason to support his capitalist enterprise that's displacing other people of color. So what I think is important to talk about with the Latino owner is just related to what we were talking about in episode four um, about the hierarchies within this group of people that we consider Latinx due to colorism and due to class differences. And because I saw pictures of the owner and it, to me, he looked white passing. And so I, th- I think that um, we're going to talk about this later in the internalized racism segment, but white Latinx people and light-skinned Latinx people, myself included, get many benefits because of their proximity to whiteness. And I think especially in a context where uh, affirmative action is used in most universities and in most workplaces, it's problematic to have people who are read as white to be occupying those spaces for that work that are meant to ameliorate past injustices and current injustices based on how you're read because if you're read as white and you get the benefits of being white then I think it's inappropriate to to use your Latinidad and and leverage it for your own benefit which I think is exactly what Chavaria was trying to do. He wanted to use his Latinidad to leverage his own capitalist enterprise. And that's an individualistic goal and not at all something that benefits Latinx community. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you just said. It's sad. I just, I feel like it's, it's hiding behind his Latinidad as using it as a way to not be accountable, which I just, you know, we all need to be accountable I think we mentioned this at the beginning, just kind of the response to the tactics that were being used. And I just wanted to circle back and we can end on this, Yvette. It's it's hard to see like what other options are there, right? Yvette, you mentioned like some folks might be like, oh, lobby your council members or like all these other things. But it's like you're, those avenues all require like capital and time and not just time and like the ability to like go down there and join a meeting and add your name to an agenda or the time of like calling folks and getting them to answer your calls and telling them your concerns but the time in terms of like a long-term solution it's like are people supposed to be writing their like city council members as they can no longer afford to live there like are they expected to continue to like just be writing letters and calling in as they like have to move elsewhere and like move out like they out what do folks expect i think that that's a really unrealistic expectation especially when these communities that we're talking about have many immigrant residents living within them and residents aren't or if you're undocumented you're not allowed to vote in elections so it's naive to think that a politician is going to care about, I mean, these days to care about an average constituent, but let alone a person who's not technically a constituent. Um, yeah, if you're a convicted felon, you can't vote. Right. And so I think that that's just totally ignoring how the folks who are participating in protest are doing so because that is the most effective means to leverage their voice because they're pushed out and excluded from these structures of power. Yeah, it's like we're constantly fighting against voter ID laws and all these other things that make it hard for someone to vote, right? Like we have very exclusive election process, right? Like, so one, like who's on the ballot already excludes so many people, but who on like how that person on the ballot gets to have a campaign right like they depend on these businesses that will donate a ton of money that will host their fundraisers for them and then like okay having to get time off to go work there's all these barriers it's like you can't like no this is not reasonable this was not meant to be responsive to this the people like the founders everybody they admit that they did not want a government that was responsive to the people you know so this the, these tactics make sense to me. Yvette, do you want to end on the uh, quote by Martin Luther King Jr.? Because I thought it was a really good one. Oh, yeah. Just Martin Luther King said that a riot is the language of the unheard. 
and I'm not describing the actions of Defend Boyle Heights as a riot. Um, and I think that's a loaded term, but I think that it's when people are engaging in direct action and more confrontational tactics um, or just generally a protest, it's important to recognize people's positionalities and what motivates them to choose certain avenues of power over others. Thank you for that quote, Yvette. Okay, so our case this week is, it's a long title, so bear with me, Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs versus the Inclusive Communities Project, Inc. Yvette, do you want to just tell us what is this case dealing with and if you want to get into the holding and then we can get it, or you want to get into the facts and then we can get into the holding. Okay. Um, so this case was about the Fair Housing Act, which was passed in 1968, actually speaking of Martin Luther King a week after he died. And um, it was created to prevent discrimination in occurring in the housing context and this discrimination protected race, color, national origin, religion, sex, disability, and the presence of children. And so the question that was at issue in this case was whether or not people could bring disparate impact claims under the Fair Housing Act. And uh, a disparate impact claim is one in which there's a race-neutral law or policy, as in there's nothing in the way that it's written uh, that would make you think that it had uh, racial animus behind it. But despite that fact, if it still has a disparate or disproportionate impact on people of color, then you can still challenge that law or policy as long as you can prove that even though it's neutral on its face, the way that it's applied disproportionately negatively impacts people of color or whichever protected group you're trying to defend. Yeah, so that's an expansion it's expansion, right? Because it's it's allowing new different type of evidence to prove that this policy, this law is resulting in discrimination whereas you know, like proving racial animus is really hard. Like it's getting easier when you have a president like the when we do now and when you have like the alt-right like being very out and out but just in so many cases it's so hard to prove the racial animus because you basically have to have evidence of the person being like oh well I don't want to rent to so-and-so because they're black and people are like at least a little bit smart enough to like not say that they'll use coded language and like we've talked before about coded language and how it comes up everywhere but you can't like you can like in when the prosecutors are striking jurors you can come up with things that are race neutral but that are still like based on race and so this at least you can say like okay so you might not be intending to discriminate or whatever but you are because look at these statistics yeah, and so to get into the facts of the case, uh, there was a nonprofit, Inclusive Communities, that is, was suing um, the state of Texas um, for how it allocated housing tax credits. So the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development has a low-income housing tax credit that allows developers to build affordable housing without losing money. And so if there's a developer that wants to build a new apartment building, for example, this federal subsidy um, allows states to pay that developer a certain amount of money, give them a certain kind of certain amount of tax credits in order to incentivize them to create X amount of units that are affordable or that are considered affordable housing. And the federal government has this money to give to states. And then the states decide how they're going to allocate the tax credits. There's lots of different ways they could do it. Um, you could give tax credits to high-poverty neighborhoods, or you could give tax credits to 
higher income neighborhoods with the hope of having units for lower income people. And uh, the Inclusive Communities nonprofit was trying to argue that because the state of Texas only gave these housing tax credits to buildings in lower income neighborhoods, that they were actually perpetuating seg- racial segregation because um, not ha- not having any tax credits in more affluent neighborhoods essentially made it impossible to f- to have low income people of color move into those neighborhoods and by only including affordable housing units within lower income neighborhoods then they were just perpetuating the status quo was the argument of inclusive communities yeah and just segregation on segregation So I guess we already discussed the holding, right? So the Supreme Court found that you can accept these disparate impact arguments and the evidence to prove the discrimination under the Federal Housing Act. And they compared it to like other discriminate, like other laws and like title titles that have been passed to fight discrimination to use their analysis. But one thing that I really liked in the language of the court itself is they quote the Kerner Commission, and I'll post a link to the to the report by the Kerner Commission and just some more information on what it, what the commission was. But it was a commission that was started in the mid 1960s, and the the Supreme Court opinion quotes their their first line because this was a really famous line, and I think it's just the fact that they were quoting this line in 2015. I think. All of us like will hear it and it's just like it just applies so well to today as well. And so I just love that the Supreme Court quoted um, the part where they say our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And I just thought that language is so powerful. And so I was proud of the court for like including this in their opinion. Yeah, I think that it's definitely good. And um the words of the Kerner Commission are still still very much applicable today. Uh, I think we should talk about how uh, what procedures have to occur for a disparate impact claim to be successful because there's a little bit of like before you can get to the question of whether or not there were negative effects that disproportionately affected people of color you have to the plaintiffs have to prove that there were other alternatives that could be less discriminatory which i think is important to bring up because i think it's always important to dissect the principle behind a law and i think in this instance it's interesting that the principle is that the victim of housing discrimination needs to prove that there were no other better solutions for the or that there could have been other better solutions for the department and i i think that that idea reflects a lot of ideas in our society of like just a general victim blaming culture that plays out in various contexts but i think in this instance is especially infuriating because i feel like i i know lawyers that have also absorbed this mentality of like someone of the person bringing up an issue of race needing to come up with the solution for it like I think in my experience what's occurred is that I recently told an organization that I felt like they had issues with only hiring white lawyers and the response was basically like, well, I don't think that the organization has any issues with only hiring white lawyers. I think that the organization is committed to being a pipeline for lawyers of color. But the issue is just that most of the people that pass the bar are white. And so we have difficulties recruiting qualified candidates. Like, Do you or anyone else have any suggestions for how to fix that? If you do, just let us know. Oh my god, that pisses me off so much. Yeah, it's not my job. That's your hiring manager's job. Like you should thank me for bringing this up to your attention in the first place. I Yeah. I think it's so inappropriate to place that onus on a person of color 
when if your hiring manager doesn't know how to recruit qualified candidates of color, they're unqualified for their job. And and it's not my job as like someone who's not even staffed by this organization to tell you how to fix it. <laughs> um, and so and and then in the, in the context of this housing case, I also I find it burdensome that a plaintiff would have to prove that there were other alternatives that could have been less discriminatory. Yeah, and I just want to second what you're saying because I think I hear this all the time. Like, I remember hearing it when I was an undergrad where, like, I was in student government and bringing up issues of diversity and the president of the college was just like, oh, what are the solutions? I was like, pay me your salary and I will find these solutions, but I'm here as a student, uh, so no, that's your job. And, and then, like, even when, like, in your spaces, I feel like people are always like, oh, we want productive conversations, like solution-oriented conversations it's like oh so I totally like I totally agree with you and like your point is just so valid so I just wanted to harp on it for an extra minute should we talk a little bit about the the reasoning for why the court held what it did you already mentioned a little bit about congressional intent with the other laws that were passed around that time period I don't know if you want to talk about that further or any other aspect of the reasoning that caught your attention not particularly because what I my sense from it was that all the like the circuit courts which is the different regions of appeals courts before you get to the supreme court they all seem like to be pretty on board with this and it was just like it seemed like it was all like oh Texas doing Texas and so like the supreme court like had finally had this a case where they had the time and the opportunity to say like no like you we do accept disparate disparate impact and arguments so it really felt like this was a pretty like good consensus but then like texas just provided an extra opportunity to do it but something that i i was definitely like very well sorry do you want to add anything else on the reasoning before i like i move it to something else (laughs) oh no i was just gonna mention just just to reiterate what you said about how the title seven of the civil rights act passed in 1964 which passed most of the anti-discrimination laws that we have today and that law has been interpreted to allow disparate impact claims and so it did make sense that the fair housing act would also would also have room for disparate impact claims but i in the run-up to the court's decision a lot of housing advocates were really anxious because of the fact that the appeals court in this case sided with the nonprofit. And the Supreme Court took the case, granted cert for the case, or decided to to hold oral arguments and decide the final ruling, which made people nervous because they were like, "Well, why would you, why would you unearth the appeal court decision if it wasn't a good one?" And it was a, the Chief Justice Roberts' conservative court that people were worried about. But I guess they decided to do the right thing for whatever reason yeah and I think just before I move on to something like less legal I just wanted to know also for those interested in more like legal aspect that there were some limits on there are some limits on the disparate impact argument so you have to you can't just like put up the evidence and be like oh look discriminatory statistics like they're proven you have to also make the argument that those results are caused by this policy so you do have to prove like some level of causation which is like kind of tough and then if whoever is enacting this policy like whatever government entity is doing it if they have like a valid goal and they prove that this policy is like necessary then it's like it's okay that the discrimination is happening so i think you know hopefully like the disparate impact it's enough and like judges will do a good job but at the same time it's like interesting that governments can get creative of like oh well we have this other really good goal and sorry but this discriminatory policy is just what's necessary beyond that i want to move into like i just feel like yvette in like that same line of asking people of color to come up with the solutions like not only do they ask us to come up with the solutions but they also want us to give them solutions that are like simple basic quick to understand and can be like implemented in three days and this case and this language like having these two conversations back to back remind me that like no like doing 
intentional work, doing like work that is actually really focused and centered on social justice requires complexity. And so us advocates, like we really have to be able to hold complexity. Like we have to be fighting for our communities and against gentrification and against like white wealthy people for moving in. Like we have to fight for that at the same time we're fighting to be allowed to move into these other neighborhoods, like to be allowed to enter the suburbs without being like aggressively taken out, like has happened several times throughout history, right? Like, like these things are both important. And like, even when doing both of those, we still have to be doing the work of like, look, we know the statistics show that when a, like a low income student of color moves into like a white suburban neighborhood, they do better. They do better academically. They do better like in terms of like income later. But that doesn't mean then that the goal is to send more people into white neighborhoods. Like, no, we have to then continue investing in our own neighborhoods so that they have the same opportunities. And so all of this is complex and like we have to hold it all at the same time. I agree. And I, I mean... I think that this case raises a lot of questions for me. I was wondering if creating affordable housing units within lower income neighborhoods is always going to be a net negative or if it even is a net negative at all because affordable housing units need to exist. And like we were just talking about, there are certain neighborhoods that are lower income are predominantly where people of color live and they're really beneficial neighborhoods because they like the mission for example in san francisco has great access to public transportation and has all these social services that people can access for free and also has this really rich culture that people enjoy and so i do think that you're right that we need to hold we do need to hold complexity and and always remember that like the most useful analyses are local and contextual so I don't think that there's any absolute truths coming out of this conversation about gentrification and about housing because I think in I think both arguments have merit that we need to invest more in less affluent neighborhoods to improve infrastructure and we also need to provide lower income people of color with the opportunity to live in more affluent neighborhoods should they choose yeah anything else you want to add or should we end it there i think we can end it there okay so for our deep thoughts segment we wanted to talk about internalized racism Yvette, do you want to just kind of kick us off with reminding us, like, why this is important and, again, like, just the colorism within the Latinx community? Yeah, so I think that this is a really important conversation to have as two Latina women, as two light-skinned Latina women in this particular moment because with, I think that, um, the Latinx community needs to reflect on what role it's going to have in in the U.S. in which there will be mostly people of color, which is a reality that is very soon approaching. And I think especially with the privileges that white Latinx people light-skinned Latinx people and white-passing Latinx people have, we need to unpack that even more because I think those that are most proximate to whiteness stand to benefit most from this new country in which there will be a greater amount of people of color um, because I don't think that white supremacy is going to necessarily go away but I think that it's very much possible that the boundaries of what is considered white are going to expand and white Latinx people are like perfectly poised to be in that position and so 
that's why I think it's really important to talk about this because there's all these there's all these statistics that prove that white Latinx people already have a great set of privileges right now. Yeah, and I so my parents both immigrated from Mexico and like my parents are great. I love them, but all of us have done so much growth because like I know there's a lot of internalized racism that I got from like living in the United States, but then there's a lot of internalized racism that I also learned from my family, like from my parents. You know, when I remember there is I don't remember when they stopped saying this, but it it was like at least through mid-high school that like I frequently heard like tossed around my family the saying like mejora la raza in like in relation to when we would talk about like who we like who someone was dating or who someone just got married to and stuff like that and so mejora la raza roughly translates to like better the race but like la raza is very much used like to refer to like I feel like the Mexican community and 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 beyond that too it depends on the context I don't think it's, and, I don't think it's just the Mexican community. I, I think yeah. let, let us says like generally for Latinx people used. Yeah, I think I grew up in most I just like in my family. Like when we were talking about la raza, we were talking about very specifically like us Mexicans. Yeah, that um, makes sense. So yeah, like the context. But and like it took me a while to like when I finally like realized like to question it because like we were using that to be like when someone like was dating someone who was like dark-skinned or like in a job that I don't know just like so many different examples like people would be like oh like come on at least like mejora la raza and like being like oh like at least like date someone who's gonna make us like more light-skinned make your children more light-skinned or like who's gonna like bring more wealth into the family and all these like other like all these other ways of saying whiteness and you know, like, that's something they brought, we brought over from Mexico, so it's, it's not just, like, here, and it took me so long to unlearn that, like, I'm still in the process of unlearning that, and, like, so I just, like, internalized racism is just so prevalent. I think it's important to talk about how internalized racism is a legacy of colonialism, because, and we talked about this on episode four, too, where, like, the whole, the whole concept of mestizaje or like the term Hispanic, both of which are oftentimes used to highlight your Europeanness, are all legacies of a society in which proximity to European identity is what would garner you any kind of economic mobility. And, and like, also the the fact that there that these color hierarchies existed in the first place was because of the rape of indigenous women that occurred and so i just think it's important to say that because i also think it's important to have a lot of empathy for ourselves and for our parents i think that it's i think that it's really easy to to actually in, to in a kind of weird roundabout way also internalize racism and think like oh my parents are just ignorant (laughs) and and it's like you know it's a really powerful societal force that is is a legacy of a really violent time and I'm that's not an excuse because we all need to do the work of unlearning it but I think that unlearning it is a much better journey when you have empathy for yourself and for Uh, your family members yeah no I am like super proud of my family and like all the growth in so many ways that like we've done but it's just like that's what's fucked up about internalized racism right where it's like you're like you've internalized these beliefs that like in some ways like hurt you right like because like my family my parents like were really poor like my dad's family were so poor in Mexico and like and yet, like, we carry around these notions of, like, who's better and what's better, right? And, like, if we can bring them into the family, like, good for us because we don't have enough of it, you know? And so it's just, like, it's, like, no, I agree with you on having the self-empathy because, like, internalized racism, like, I really equate that with, like, self-hatred. It is. It, it is what it is. And I think that the goal of it is to have a healthier and more accurate conception of self 
and like being mean to yourself about your internalized racism is counterproductive to that goal. Yeah. So being like, oh, I was so ignorant back then or like, (laughs) you know, it's just it's like not productive. Yeah. And so I like personally, like I've been so thankful for social media. One, because like it calls like I there's been moments where like I feel like I've been called out. Right. Where it's like, oh, this is like something I feel like I hadn't thought about. And so I appreciate that someone posted about this is making me think about it. And then, like, the other spaces, too, like, like, Nargona Positivity Pride, where they're just constantly, like, reaffirming, like, that you're beautiful and, like, that we should love ourselves and, like, we are powerful and all these other things. And, like, it's just so nice to be surrounded by that. And I found, like, that's so helpful on my journey. Like, being, like, having those spaces, having those voices has been so important for me to resist and, like, unlearn the internalized hatred definitely and I think at the end of the segment we're going to talk about more concrete tips that we have for unlearning internalized racism but I think before we go into that we should share some facts in case you know anybody wants to pull a Caliucci's and talk about how their blonde hair made them oppressed (laughs) Um, and really just like point out the ways in which white Latinx people really do have privileges over latinx people who aren't white passing afro-latinx people and indigenous latinx people um lay down the facts yvette (laughs) the facts so uh, there was a study done in 2003 that found that latinos who identify as white made around five thousand dollars more a year than latinos who describe themselves as black and two thousand five hundred more than those latinos who identify as some other race so this translates into, like, money, like, physical money, like, ugh. And I think it's important to note that there's a larger disparity between Afro-Latinx people and white Latinx people, which, in the context of our society, is not surprising, but it's just important to highlight. And light-skinned Latinos have a lower unemployment rate. They live in more affluent neighborhoods and complete more years of schooling. There was a study published in Social Currents that found that light-skinned Latinos are also read as smarter by their white counterparts. Uh, you should Google Latino politicians in the U.S. It's like, It would be hilarious if it didn't have such real consequences for people. <laughs> but they're nearly all white-passing. And uh, white Latinx people have lower rates of infant mortality, lower rates of HIV, and AIDS and they're more likely to marry a white person yeah I uh, yeah this is so real like I when I think about like oh every time I want to post like a celebrity or like a musician or like a telenovela artist that I really like I just like always stop myself because I'm like oh my gosh like they're all white passing no so this is this is really problematic yeah I mean yeah telenovela casting is also a really good example of colorism that exists because the protagonist is like a white blonde you know person with european features and um the person who's the maid is darker skinned yeah another example that i'm like remembering of in, in like internalized racism from my youth is like even i don't know if you ever got this but like so where i grew up it was like basically roughly like half asian half latino and like all immigrants and i remember i was like the only mexican that was allowed over to like a lot of my asian friends home because like i was the smart mexican like it was always like the oh like the smart mexican and like all this stuff i'm just like it just i look back on this and i reflect and i'm just like it's weird that at one time like i took pride in that like not realizing like that it was also an insult yeah because yeah and that kind of reminds me of O.J. Simpson and how he kept harping on and on about how he wanted to be seen as just a great football player. He wanted to be he didn't want to be seen as uh, a really great black football player. Yeah. And it's like it's like on the one hand, I kind of understand that sentiment because what he's I think at least partially what he's saying could be understood as I just want to be seen as a full person, which I think every person of color has experienced. Like 
wanting to escape the confines of this imposed definition and just be seen as like your own individual human being with complexity. But the thing is that the solution to getting there is not ignoring your blackness or your Latinidad. Yeah. Yvette, can you think of other ways um, that internalized racism has really manifested itself or like things that people can point to and like understand like this is internalized racism at play? Yeah, I mean, I think being when I was younger, I think I could point to instances in which I felt embarrassed by my parents, you know, like, oh, embarrassed that they didn't know X American tradition. And I think that more recently in my life, it plays out in like, People of color feeling like in order to be valid or worthy that they need to have a very high paying job. I think this is especially true of the people of color that go to institutions like Stanford, especially if you're first gen. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like because it's also in a really complicated way tied to the immigrant narrative of achieving the American dream, which like because this is a capitalist country, the American dream is growing up to make a six figure salary and exploit people like your parents. Um, And I have seen people make various comments that basically imply like I want a corporate job because that's what seems like the right path or that's what this is all about. And I think it's a really complicated picture because I know that people are motivated by the fact that they have bills to pay and that they're, they want to take care of their parents. But I know, I know that also a motivating factor is, is this idea that being a worthy person of color also means being wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll use, I just feel like, just gets extra problematic when you use language with like oh yeah like I want to be somebody and it's like okay because if you're not a corporate like six-figure earning like past like checking off all these like white merit boxes you're nobody like that's what you have to be to be somebody like that's where it really ticks me off but I was also just thinking about the elotero man Benjamin Ramirez when he was attacked by the white Argentinian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Argentinian's defense was that I can't be racist because I'm Argentinian. And I think that's like particularly ironic coming from Argentina, like a country that is particularly well known for taking a strange particular pride in their quote unquote European roots. And like, again, this is just circling back to what we were talking about earlier in this episode and in episode four but we need to talk about how people can self-identify how they want but we people need to be honest about the privileges that their the color of their skin gives them and yes you're argentinian but you pass as white and you're going to be accepted in more spaces as a result and other spaces won't be dangerous to you as a result and in this instance, like this white passing man was like violently attacked um, Benjamin Ramirez, the Lotero man. And I think it's a really concrete example of how we need to talk about the privileges that white Latinx people exert. And and I think it's really important because like the way that we analyze race is very artificial. You know, like if Ben Carson says, like, this is what's good for black people because I'm black and I know, like, the, that idea that you, if you just identify as a person of color, then you understand what the experience is, is pretty salient. And because we don't have a really nuanced discussion of white Latinidad, then I feel like their privileges just aren't talked about. But then at the same time, like I was alluding to earlier, they get to benefit from these structures and programs that were put in place to benefit people who don't have all of the privileges that I just listed out. Yeah. So Yvette, for our listeners, what are some signs that you might have internalized racism? When you only talk about Latinidad to your all right friend group or when you're in a job interview? When, yes. 
when you only match with white dudes on tinder (laughs) i agree with that that's a that's a that's a self-read because i'm dating a white dude (laughs) (laughs) just kidding Um, (laughs) also i feel like wanting to always dye your hair lighter or like have light colored contact lenses which i used to do in high school or like if you're super uncomfortable like never being like without waxing or shaving and I, those are yeah all agreed and being ashamed of having an accent or being ashamed of the accent that your parents have and or like not wanting to introduce your parents to your like family or like to your friends or to like sorry i said that backwards not wanting to introduce your family to your friends or to like people you're dating yes should we talk about the things that people can do to unlearn internalized racism yes i think that would be the most helpful thing we can do to end this segment so i think intentional reflection is important for all endeavors but for this one too like if any of the things that we talked about today resonate with you then journal about it as I will do later today um just like setting aside time to say I'm going to journal about this today I'm going to like uncover my feelings about this today is really helpful yeah I personally something that I've been doing is I've just kind of like been taking stock of everything that I consume you know so like what I listen to what I watch who I spend time with and time on and like I just try to like flush all of those out of the whiteness and really include people of color and people of color voices so my podcasts like flush them out from all white voices to like all these dope podcasts created by people of color and like I've really relied on like Radio Menea for like my music and like just making sure I'm listening to like like a diverse Latinx music just like things like that i'm just like i want to be surrounded and like but what i'm watching right like tv shows like i want to see people of color yeah and i think for me in the same vein it's really important to create all poc spaces or to intentionally try and be in all poc spaces like for me one of the most powerful experiences that I had was a summer after my junior year where I did a policy program that was like 95% people of color um and I felt empowered and believed in in a way that I hadn't ever before and I think that there's a particular kind of magic that happens when it's like all people of color in a room sharing yeah, it's ideas just nice Yeah, it's nice to not be the minority or the token sometimes. Yeah. And then finally, just learning your history. It was really powerful for me to take ethnic studies classes in college and realize that, you know, white superiority is a lie and that there's all these really dope ancestors and people in history that whose shoulders I'm standing on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Let's end there. Yvette, what's your recommendation for this week? Uh, I watched the movie Girls Trip over the weekend. and Oh my god, I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was hilarious. It was really refreshing for me to see a movie with all black women as lead actresses and not have and having them be the people cracking jokes, having them be the ones with the punchlines instead of being the butt of jokes or being the punchline, which so often happens in comedies. And it was nice to not have to be on the lookout for racist or misogynistic jokes, which is why I actually really don't enjoy the comedy genre all that much because I feel like it's usually pretty tasteless. And But it this was the exact opposite and was just gave me life the whole time and Tiffany Haddish who is the kind of the breakout star of the film is like my new favorite person she's so funny and she has great stand-up on YouTube too 
So I recommend going to watch Girls Trip and supporting black actresses. Dope. Um, my recommendation, which, by the way, I'm going to go watch that movie sometime soon. Um, but my recommendation is a specific episode from the podcast Latino USA. They recently did an episode. Um, it's titled The Stolen Child. And I've just been kind of thinking a lot about when like children are taken and like incarceration and just and the whole episode really focuses also just on authoritarianism in in general. And so I don't know, it's just like it's something I've been thinking about. So listening to this really well made podcast episode on the topic I found to be really great. So I'll post a link to it. Which reminds me, you can find links to everything we discussed and then some more. Like, we forgot to mention this really great trailer earlier in our gentrification segment. So we'll post a really cool link on cerebronas.com and everything we'll discuss will be on there. And finally, if you like us, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us with visibility and reading, reaching more audience listeners. Thank y'all for listening. And that's another episode. It's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, yeah. Who it is, son? Yo, my dogs roll heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they don't get cold feet.